Hey, whether you enjoy listening to Breaking Down Collapse or Building Up Resilience, I think you'll also really enjoy our bonus content on Patreon. Yeah, Kellen and I take 20 minutes each week to talk about the news that's happening all around us and Collapse as it plays out. We like to have a little fun with it, but also make sure that you're aware of what's going on in the world of Collapse. We look forward to having you join us there. The link to join us on Patreon is in the episode description. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello, welcome back to Breaking Down Collapse. I'm Corey, here again with Kellen today. I do want to start the podcast off by apologizing for my voice. I've been feeling a little sick over the weekend, and I'm a little congested. I was telling Kellen before the podcast, I'll probably sneeze on him here once or twice. The bigger concern for me is that I've always been the one with a deeper, more nasally voice. (laughs) So we're going to sound like the same human while you're sick. That might be a risk that we take here. Well, as long as it's not. COVID. <laughs> yeah. I got tested for COVID a couple of days ago, came back negative. You know, they don't tell you that the test could hurt and it actually really hurt. Does it? Oh my gosh. I, and it's not that way for everybody. I actually Googled it after because I was feeling like a real baby, but it felt like they, I was getting a shot in my brain and I got a little dizzy from it. And I was like, what the heck? So I Googled it and there's an article from Medium that was saying that some people, I guess, depending on your anatomy or depending on the person who administers the test, that it can actually feel that way. And someone on there explained it exactly how I felt about it. That It just felt like I was getting stabbed in the brain. And so that made me feel a little less like a pansy. Well, it sounds awful either way. Even if it doesn't hurt, the idea of something going that deep up my nose. <laughs> yeah, it was, it was not fun. And I'm kind of, you know, I'm a young, healthy guy with no comorbidities. So if I got it, it probably wouldn't have done anything to me. And so I was kind of hoping I'd be positive so that at least for the next few months, I wouldn't have to go back in and get another test. But now if I get sick again, I'm going to feel like uh, it's my responsibility to go through that again. But yeah. I guess we'll see. So I'm super excited to dive back into this. Did you have any thoughts from the last week? I know it's been a little bit since we last spoke. Yeah, actually, it's been on my mind a lot. And 
maybe it's just because now every news article that I look at, I'm kind of viewing it through this lens and I'm still a little bit skeptical of some of the things that you mentioned around collapse. I'm excited to learn more. It actually made me think about growing up. My parents would frequently say something along the lines of like, Oh, you don't know how easy you have it back in our day. Right. We didn't have the fancy luxuries that you have. Or Classic we- old person boomer language yeah yeah (laughs) and and their parents would tell them the same thing all the time like oh we didn't have the kind of cars you have and we didn't have color television i walked uphill both ways and two feet of snow to school and back yeah and their parents told them the same thing it's like things have just gotten easier and easier at least from a technological standpoint and all the luxuries that we have right and so i just thought if if this whole collapse thing really does happen then I might be telling my kids the very opposite. Back in my day, we had it so much easier than right. you have it. <laughs> right. So, and it probably won't be you telling your kids. It'll probably be your kids reminding you constantly how easy you had it. <laughs> <laughs> well, either way, I, it's made me think a lot about what it could actually look like and how it might really take place. That's why I'm excited to learn about it because I know that you know a lot more about how it might all play out. Yeah, that's a good way to look at it because it's true. Through time, our technological advances have gotten better and better and better, right? And collapse, like we've talked about, is the reversal of complexity in which we get simpler and simpler and some of those technologies go away. And that's actually precisely what we're going to talk about today in regards to what complexity is and kind of how we've grown into these technological advancements that we have today. Maybe a good way to start would be to define collapse again. And so Jared Diamond defines it as a drastic decrease in human population size and or political, economic, or social complexity over a considerable area for an extended time. And so a big part of that phrase is about the complexity piece. And so I think it is really important to understand and really figure out what it means to be complex, what it means to be simple, and also talk about how we got to this point today. So I I think it's interesting that Just like we're talking about collapse being going from a complex system down to a simple one, well, we got here by starting out simple and then becoming complex. And so it is just basically a reversal of the same process. Being a part of a complex system is actually a really relatively recent phenomenon. I think most people think of human history and we we don't really think further back than when we started being complex. And it's because that was when records started to be taken. And so that's what we learned about in school. You know, I think about my life and I think most people today walk around the streets never thinking about what really life was like before the fancy cell phones and the big buildings and the conveniences and everything that we have. Um, But in reality, really only 2% of human history has been complex and the other 98% has been simple societies. So I think in order to take a look at how complex we are, it's kind of important to go back and look at where we started. Our ancestors have been around for Six million years or so is what they think. That's when, you know, monkeys first started walking on two legs, basically. But from that time period to the time of the first known technological advancement was nearly three and a half million years. And all that was, was basically then figuring out to take two rocks and breaking them together in a way that would cause them to shard off and make little, like, almost knives, like really crude stone tools. And so it's not like this huge, crazy thing, right? But it took them three and a half million years to do, which to me is is crazy. And then in 40 or 50,000 BC, then they started getting carvings and cave paintings. And then in 10,000 BC, the Neolithic Revolution began. And that's where things really started kicking off. So agriculture, clay pottery, 
they were weaving fabric together. The wheel was invented and groups of people started living together. And then only 7,000 years later in 3000 BC, the Bronze Age began. And that's when we actually get our first definable complex societies. So if I can jump in, to me, it's really interesting to hear that it took millions of years for us to even make any progress. And then, you know, it, in just a few thousand years, all of a sudden we're seeing all these advancements. It's almost like a, a child going from not saying even their first word to all of a sudden they're writing like a complex thesis. Or something like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And that's, that's how exponential growth works. And especially when you think about, you know, 150 years ago, we didn't even have cars. And now we're 3D bioprinting body parts and putting them in people. And Tesla is putting like implants in people's brains. So that brings up a really important point. And what I'm about to say is maybe a little wordy, but I'll do my best to explain it. And it's that there is a decline in marginal productivity of technological advancement over time. So basically what that means is that we picked the low-hanging fruit first when it came to technological advancement. So when you look at things like the theory of gravity and electricity, the steam engine, that was all relatively basic stuff compared to the types of things that are being invented and, and developed today. And those things were all invented by guys who could have done it on their own in their basement, right? And we get names like Edison, Alexander Graham Bell, and Franklin, who were able to invent something with relatively like, low resources, no money, maybe not a lot of help. But when you think of like today, there aren't really any inventors that I can think of who just kind of stand alone. But who does come to mind to you when you think of like modern day inventors or innovators? I mean, the only one I can think of off the top of my head is Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, perfect. So like Tesla. But the thing is, for me, that Elon Musk doesn't do these inventions by himself. He's got almost 50,000 employees on his payroll. And I know that not all of his employees are maybe on R&D and developing new inventions, but a significant portion of them are. And so he has to have a lot of resources and he has to use his billions of dollars to put into these new inventions. And it's interesting because his innovations are just that. They aren't new inventions. They're innovating on already existing technologies. So when you consider solar energy or electric cars, those things have already existed for several years before Elon Musk got involved. He's just making them better, but it's taking him a ton of resources to make that happen. Yeah. And it makes me kind of think about, I thought about this before, how if I if if I were somebody living 300 years ago and I went back to a few thousand years ago, I could show them the best technology I had and be like, look at a wagon. Isn't this thing amazing? And then I could build one for them. I could, I could show them how to make a wagon. Right. And their minds would be blown. If I were to go back to somebody 300 years ago and say, you'll, you'll never believe it. We have these things called cars. And they said, okay, build me one. I, there's no way I'd be able to do anything like that. And I wouldn't even know where to start or have any of the resources to start. So it feels like we're all so specialized now and we're so dependent on all the knowledge that's come before us. So to me, this makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And not only are we dependent on the knowledge that was gained before us, but the whole idea of a decline in marginal productivity of technological advancement, which by the way, we could also call it just diminishing returns of technological advancement is a little bit easier. But the whole idea of it is that in order to make the same incremental growth and advancements that we made before, we now have to spend exponentially larger amounts of resources. 
whether that be money, people, energy, or others. And so this concept will keep coming up and we'll expound more on it in the next few episodes. But I'll kind of end it here by saying that the whole purpose for innovation is to solve problems. When a new problem presents itself, we come up with a new innovation specific to that problem. But because there has been and will continue to be exponential growth in the resource cost to come up with these new innovations, that is one way in which problem solving will become much more difficult in the future. But also consider how much more difficult it will become when the problems themselves are shortages in resources. How could we possibly come up with new innovations for a problem when that problem is a lack of the resources needed for the innovation in the first place? In other words, we can no longer afford to solve our problems. And hopefully I explained that okay, um, but if it isn't completely clear, don't worry because we are going to talk about it again in coming episodes. Yeah, I think you make a really good point there. And it's something that I hadn't really put a lot of thought into, but I'm excited to see how it plays out with the rest of what you're talking about. Well, I think at this point, we should go back and talk more now about what complexity actually is. Because we've said that word a ton of times, but we haven't really discussed what does it actually mean to be a complex society versus a simple society. So I mentioned before that um, it was about 3000 BC that our first complex societies started showing up. And they started showing up in Egypt, Mesopotamia, the Indus Valley, and China. And that's also where we get like the Mycenaeans. And so knowing it took millions of years to kind of hit this point, what caused such a crazy rapid transition? What was the tipping point on this exponential growth? And so the answer to that is that they stopped producing just what they needed to get by. And they started through some technological advances to be able to produce a surplus. And so what that did was it gave them access to more energy. If before, as a simple society, they were having to spend all of their energy hunting for food, gathering berries, finding good water sources, defending themselves against predators, there just wasn't enough surplus energy to be able to expend towards growth, towards innovation. And it's funny because the concept that we just talked about regarding decreasing marginal productivity of technological advancements, this was the opposite because they actually had an increase in marginal productivity because by having more energy, they were able to create more advancements. And with more advancements, they were able to then open up more energy for themselves. It was a positive feedback loop that fed on itself that allowed them to continue to be more and more efficient. So as they got more efficient, they grew in size. The, the societies started to get bigger and bigger. In the past, it was that they were smaller kin-based societies. They were just families. And the entire like societal roles was based on where you fit into the family. But as the societies grew larger, there were more and more societal roles. And so actually, anthropologists have done some studies and found that in simple societies, there was usually just like one to two dozen social roles in total in the entire society, where in the Bronze Age, in a complex society, they had like 10 to 12,000. And today in industrial societies, we have more than a million social roles. And so what I mean by social roles is that might be in a simple society, you were known as the brother-in-law to someone else. And maybe you were also like the guy who fetched the water, right? And that was really it. Whereas today we have all these crazy amounts of different roles that we each play in order to keep society running. There's a ton of moving parts and we're each a little cog in the huge system. And that brings us to a division of labor, which I think is the biggest part of a complex society. So essentially what happened is we started specializing in our roles of what we did. Whereas before, it didn't matter how good you were at any one thing. If you were to survive, you had to do it all. So I might have been like an excellent 
candle maker, right? But I still had to probably make my own clothes and build my own shelter and do my own hunting and build my own weapons. And that took up all of my time. Well, in specialization and in division of labor, I could now take my skill of making these wonderful candles and being able to trade those with someone else who, you know, makes spears and can build me a shelter and that sort of thing. So what I'm hearing is that clear back when people were kind of a jack of all trades and they had to be just to survive. Right. But now I do task A and I depend on you for task B and somebody else for task C and all the things that are necessary for my survival, we're all just very like interconnected and interdependent. Yeah. And it, this worked out really well for two reasons. Number one, it bought me more time. I didn't have to spend all day doing all the tasks. I could spend half the day doing the tasks that I'm good at. In this example, I said making candles. And then I could spend the rest of the day on whatever I wanted. You know, I had that time to help my society grow. And the other reason is because it actually introduced a lot of quality into the system. So whereas before I might have been able to make a really good candle, but then I made a really crappy shelter and, you know, really cruddy clothes and made really cruddy weapons. Now I can take my really quality candles and trade it with someone else who makes really quality spears and who makes really good quality homes. And it, and it makes a lot of sense to me. And I don't know if this is necessarily relevant, but I think of being in like a startup company and you've got the co-founder who wears all these different hats, right? There's three people at the company and one of them does all the HR tasks and does all the design work and does all the finances. And you've got somebody else who does all these other things. But as the organization grows, as the business grows, you get people who are much more specialized until you become a big corporation where you've got like extremely specialized positions. So, exactly. so to me, just from like living in the business world, it makes a whole lot of sense that it would be the same in society. Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Essentially, the economics of it is that you become more efficient when you focus on what it is that you're good at. And when there's a bunch of people doing that exact same thing, it allows for growth. And that is exactly what allowed for our huge amounts of growth to where we are today. With this amount of complexity, you also started to get hierarchical structures. So before in our kin-based chiefdoms or tribes or whatever it might have been, your place in the hierarchy was based on your place in the family. But now someone in power got there probably from a different way. That could have been through seizing power. That could have been through a democracy and they were voted in, or it could be something like a religious declaration or title where people kind of gave them legitimacy based on their beliefs. And then that leads to inequality. In a simple society, it was expected that the leader of the family would sacrifice himself and would sacrifice whatever he had to, to make sure that everyone was taken care of and that there was equality. It's much easier to take care of a small group of people. But as you grow and you become more complex, inequality inevitably sets in. You start to get a disparity between the wealth at the top and the poverty at the bottom. And we obviously see that happening today as well. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. 
Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So now once you've got trade and you've got people specializing in things, you have to have an organization that allows you to control it. And this is huge too for complex societies. You have to have an organized political and legal structure. If there's trade happening, then there needs to be laws around that trade and punishment for disobeying those laws. And so you start to get a lot of policing and and things like that in a complex structure. So the last two things, basically you get bigger features, like big architectural projects. So we see like in Egypt, the, the pyramids, those are not things that you could do in a simple, small society. You had to have specialized roles and extra time, essentially, to be able to make that happen. You also get large-scale agricultural development, which is huge because it essentially allows everybody to be fed, which is one of the most important aspects to surviving. And when you can do that on a large scale and efficiently, it allows for what we've talked about, which is the extra time to continue to allow yourself to advance your society. So I feel like you're giving me a lot of information, which is great. But let me just see if I can summarize and if I've got it right. It sounds like growth leads to specialization, which leads to more complexity and more growth. And you need some sort of a structure or an organization to maintain all of that. And so it kind of all feeds on itself. And that's from what it sounds like where you get this exponential growth. That's exactly right. Yeah. And to say, I think in simplest terms, Joseph Tainter, who I talked about last episode, he does basically boil it down to, to two main things. And he says that complexity is basically having a ton of moving parts and then having an organization that allows for those parts to work together. Perfect. So what do you think? You feel like we tick the boxes of complexity in today's society? Oh, for sure. I feel like we're way more complex than anything you've described so far. And especially with with the technology that allows us to be so global, all of a sudden we've got you talked about moving parts. It seems like our world is just a million moving parts that all have to fit together just right. Yeah. It's almost like we've got, you know, thousands of societies that work together in one massive society and in sub societies too, right? When you think about specialization, I, on an individual level, specialize in my workplace, but like different regions of the country specialize in different things too. So like I think about like the Pacific Northwest, Oregon and Washington, and they they specialize in lumber. Pretty much all the lumber you get, not all of it, but most of the lumber that you get is is from up there. Whereas in like Texas, they specialize in drilling for oil. If you're building a house in Texas, you might be getting your lumber from the Pacific Northwest and they may be getting their oil from Texas. And then on a global scale, it even goes out from there, right? So like the US exports certain things and other countries export other things. And we all just engage in this massive, crazy web of trade, and that's just economically speaking. There are so many pieces to the complex puzzle that it's it's overwhelming, quite honestly. And so this is where we kind of get to the dark side of complexity. Because so far we've talked about how great it is, right? There's all these positive feedback loops of continued advancement and growing. Well, you did you did mention like the disparity between wealth and poverty. That's right? true. So that seems yeah. like one part of the dark side. 
Yeah, absolutely. And that's, that's great. That's one point. Like inequality today is worse in the US and in probably most parts of the world than it has been in the past. And that's because we're continuing along this complex pathway. So that's totally true, but it gets darker. I wish that inequality was where it ended, but the truth is, and I want to refer back to Jared Diamond's definition of collapse. He talks about population decrease and he talks about a decrease in complexity. And those two things are really tied together. When you think about the population in the bronze age, it peaked at 50 million. And today we're 160 times that in global population. So that's a huge jump. But not only that, during the bronze age, that lasted 2000 years and their population only doubled. We have grown by 10 times in the last 250 years. So yeah, with our increased level of complexity has also come an incredible boom in population. And so one of the most important points of this episode is to understand that our current population size that we're at today is not possible without the complexity level that we're at today. If we were to go back to even a little bit simpler of a time, our population would go with it. So the danger of complexity is that we sacrifice our independence. The benefit is that we get increased technology and lifespan and comfort, which just means higher standards of living. But the truth is that we do give up our independence. In a simple society, yeah, I had to do everything myself for my survival. I had to make the candles and the shelter and the food and all that. But I was in charge of my own well-being and my own survival. Whereas today, I don't get that luxury. I am dependent on a system to keep me alive. So as you say that, it actually brings up a question for me. Because yes, we are very dependent on others, but some would say that's a good thing. That means we have this safety net in society. If I'm struggling to survive personally, that I'm not alone and dependent solely on myself for my survival. Yeah, and that's true. In our current state, that's absolutely true. It is kind of a blessing to be able to have others around us that can help lift us up when when we're down and give us resources when we need them, right? But the problem is the weakness of the system as a whole. If the system itself were to collapse, then you would be looking for help the same as everybody else around you would be. And I think this might be a good time to bring up an example. And last episode, we talked a little bit about this, and I specifically said, this is not collapse. And so I want to say this again before I dive into this example, because I don't want people to think this is what I believe is going to happen. But I believe that it's a really great way to view our vulnerability in the system. And that is by talking about what would happen in the event of an EMP or an electromagnetic pulse or a solar flare or any, any of these things that would have basically the same effect. So preppers really cling on to this idea. I mentioned this last episode. They really like to talk about EMPs and solar flares. And the reason is because both of those things would expose our societies to basically an immediate collapse. I don't think this is what's going to happen, but again, it's just a great way to demonstrate the vulnerability of society. So an electromagnetic pulse is basically a terrorist attack that would happen on a region or a country that would immediately terminate all electronics. Essentially, a nuclear weapon is fired, it's detonated up in very high up in the atmosphere, and it's actually been tested before and, and it works. And so when you think about an electromagnetic pulse happening now or a solar flare that does the same thing happening now, I mean, we're talking like immediately, not only do the lights go out, 
but the large transformers that power cities also go out and cannot be immediately repaired. Your cell phone dies in your pocket. You can go to your battery-powered flashlight, but it's not going to turn on. So this would have pretty significant impacts. And it kind of branches out from there because then you realize planes that are currently flying in the sky when it happens would suddenly plunge from the air into the ground. There's like 10,000 flights at a time, for example. If you've got a pacemaker, like your heart stops beating right there, right? So that's just what would happen right in the instant that it took place. But then on a larger scale, like we're talking about like vehicles would stop functioning. And if there's no vehicles running, meaning semi-trucks can't get from place to place, like you can just imagine the sort of havoc that that would cause. Yeah, totally. And I've heard of EMPs before. I've never really thought through all the implications of it, but it does seem like pretty much everything we depend on relies on some form of electricity. Yeah. Like hospitals would not be able to continue to take patients. The grocery stores would lose any food that it had refrigerated. And you can imagine, I mean, just take coronavirus. You remember having a toilet paper during coronavirus. Oh yeah. It was gone from all the shelves. <laughs> I mean, it took me, I waited like three weeks because I thought, okay, in a few weeks it'll come back. I've got a little bit to get me through. But as I was getting low, I had to go out and look. And I literally spent like a few hours one day going to several stores. Nobody had it. I eventually, my sister-in-law had bought a little bit extra and let us have some. But that was basically just because people panicked a little bit because they thought that maybe supplies might run a little low. Imagine what would happen if all of a sudden the things we're talking about took place. Like the panic would just be unbelievable. The stores would be cleared in moments. And once the food is gone, it's not going to be restocked on the shelves. There's no trucks to take it there. There's no tractors to make more food. And then you just realize, like, I rely 100% for my survival on the fact that I can go down to the grocery store at any time. But when that's gone, and when water stops running to your tap because it requires an electric pump to get it there and an electric plant to clean it, you're without food and water, you're without AC and heat, and all these things that all of a sudden they just stack on top of each other and you just go, we are so dependent on this. Yeah, and when you were first describing it, and I'm imagining this happening, I'm thinking, well, fortunately I've got some food and water on hand, maybe I'm okay for a little while, but if it's in the middle of winter, my heating system is totally dependent on electricity, I don't have a wood-burning stove, I, I don't know how like the gas lines would be affected, but it sounds like pretty much everything I depend on would be gone in an instant. It would. And the type of just unrest and problems that that would create would be unprecedented. This is all very dramatic. And I'll say it for like the fifth time. I don't think this is what's going to happen. But there have been serious talks about this within the US government about how can we prevent this type of thing from happening because it's plausible. And there hasn't been a sufficient answer about how we can harden our grid, our electric grid, and protect ourselves against this because our complex society is such that it's vulnerable to it. When it comes to like a solar flare, you know, there's conflicting research on this, but they believe that it's between somewhere between 1% and 12% every decade that we could have a solar flare big enough to cause this sort of problem. And I mean, 1% to 12%, it doesn't sound like big numbers, but when you consider the toll that it would take, even 1%, half a percent is too much for me, right? 
But that leads to one more hypothetical I want to do. So let's say we're living in the year 1785. The Revolutionary War has just ended and a massive solar flare, the size and power of an EMP comes careening towards Earth. And what does it do? It creates like these beautiful auroras in the night sky. And other than that, society goes on because they weren't dependent. They weren't to the point of complexity where they were reliant on the electronics. Yeah. And yet the way you described it in our day, it would be total mayhem and chaos all at once. Like in an instant, so many people would die. And then from there, how do the rest of us survive? That's exactly it. And the the Pentagon, the reports that I was talking about, they actually sort of hypothesized that 90% of the population would be dead within a year. And this isn't some conspiracy theorist, you know, someone in their basement making that up. This is the Pentagon's report on this potential occurrence. So it doesn't have to be an EMP. It doesn't have to happen in a millisecond. It could happen over years or decades, but the results are the same. It doesn't have to be that our electronics suddenly are fried. It could be that over time, as a society, we're not able to afford the energy or resource infrastructure required to keep them running. And the results would be the same. It makes me think of a time, I think it was a few years ago, that there was like an increase in fuel prices. I don't know if you remember this, but there was a short period of time where the fuel prices kind of jacked up. Mm -hmm. And... I remember hearing reports about how that was causing farmers to not be able to run all their agricultural equipment and produce like the corn that they needed to. And apparently corn is one of the biggest sources of food for livestock. And so all these crazy things started happening. And I don't know if you remember this, but I remember like meat prices were going way up and prices of all these other random things were jacking up just because the fuel price was going up. And so for me, thinking back on that, it's like, whoa, that was one little change to how things operate currently. And if we had any sort of a significant change, whether even if it was over time, that is scary to think about. Absolutely. And collapse is essentially a series of events like those happening that become unsustainable and cause a system to not be able to support itself. And the next few episodes, we're going to be focusing specifically on that, and even more specifically on what you mentioned, um, the energy sources that we use, like oil and gas. And so that's an excellent point. So capitalism is all about efficiency. And that is kind of the rule today, right? Everything has to be efficient. And we sacrifice a lot in order to maintain that efficiency. And one of the ways that capitalism really shows its kind of ugly head is through our supply chain management. So in our talk about EMPs, we talked about how like everything would be gone from the grocery stores, but in an, even in a much less severe event like COVID-19 and the toilet paper crisis, it shows how weak the supply chains are. Supply chains use what is called just-in-time inventory methods. I think you already probably know a little bit about that because you're a business major. Yeah, just from my MBA. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. And it does a company no good to keep extra stuff on hand. It costs money in inventory space takes longer to sell. And so for that, they literally just keep what they feel like they have to have in order to, to get by based on demand. So if there's any hiccup at all in the demand, it can't be met. And the same thing goes not just for the stores that are selling it, but the warehouses that are housing it and the manufacturers who are making it. They're only going to make the exact amount that they think needs to be made. And so if all of a sudden there's a surge in demand for toilet paper, 
it takes a long time for that to get back up the chain and for the demand to be met. We saw it not just with toilet paper, but canned foods and rice. I remember trying to get rice for a while and like cleaning products. All of those things were really hard to get during that time. And it was for nothing. It was just a like make-believe panic in people's minds that for some reason it was all going to be gone. And so people went and like overbought. But if there was a real crisis, that can cause real problems. So one day as complexity decreases, as our infrastructure starts to fail and as supply chains fail, the food and water will be gone. And unlike the period during COVID, it may not come back. And if it does, or for the little bit that remains, it'll be for the very rich. Probably not for me and you. And so we've talked about why being in a complex society makes you vulnerable. And in the coming episodes, we'll talk about what the immediate threats are to the system. Yeah, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. And I feel like even just this conversation that we've had it helps me understand it a lot better. Because at first, collapse in my mind was just like, oh, crazy apocalypse stuff. And then when he said, well, it's our complex system becoming more simple, I thought, oh, that doesn't sound so bad. Right. <laughs> but now that I think about and hear about just how fragile everything is because of how interdependent we are and how complex our society is, it makes me realize how much of a reality this could be, how easily it could all come crashing down, even if just one cog in the system got messed up. Talking about going from a complex to a simple society sounds pretty nice and tame, but in reality, we haven't heard anything yet. So come back next week and we'll chat some more. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.